Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show... Adam Spinella in the building. How's it going? Adam, what's going on, buddy? Hey, Sam. Uh, the Denver Nuggets are NBA champions, and uh, it's pretty damn yeah. great, man. It's pretty damn great. It's super cool. It's amazing. I'm so happy for the great people of Denver. I'm so happy that they get to see an NBA champion for the first time in this organization's history. They beat the Miami Heat in five games. What a tremendous accomplishment. We're going to talk about that at the top. Specifically, we're going to talk about the way that they built this team and lessons that could be taken away from how they built this team in order to build other teams around the league, potentially. Or uh, just every year, it feels like we talk about, oh, this NBA champion did this, this NBA champion did that. Sometimes it's a little bit ridiculous, but I think the Nuggets are this incredible, unbelievable story of patience and as Mark Schindler and I talked about a couple of weeks ago on the show just awesome awesome perseverance in terms of roster building that I think deserves a lot of credit yeah after that we're going to talk a lot about the NBA draft and talk about some of the rumors that are bubbling circulating around the NBA draft right now Sham Sharania my colleague over at The Athletic reported today that the Pelicans are interested in Scoot Henderson so we're going to talk about that at the end of the show But first, let's talk about the Nuggets. Adam, I'm just going to be completely transparent with you. This has been the craziest workday I've had in months. Uh, It's always like this on International Withdrawal Day because that is the day where we finalize the draft guide and then publish it like within the next couple of days after that because we like to have a full draft pool before doing it. So when that happens my schedule just completely falls apart a lot of the time and I'm rushing. I'm trying to write like little mini profiles to catch up. I'm trying to write X, Y, and Z to get things together. And it just completely falls off a cliff in so many different directions. So I'll start here. I watched very little of this basketball game, which is why we're going to look big picture at this whole thing. Because I think it's a fascinating case of a number of different avenues that talk about everything that we talk about on this show at the end of the day. So I'll at least give you the floor. Adam, you did watch a good amount of this game, right? You watched the whole thing, yeah. Okay, give me some takeaways on this game because I've just been all over the map. 
So, I mean, there's a lot that we could talk about in terms of X's and O's or dissection or who stepped up when, like, absolutely thrilling game. So, Sam, when you get a moment and you file all the things you need to file for your your big uh, draft guide, go back and watch this one because it was a wicked bond burner, as they say, up in Boston. A fantastic game through and through. And uh, Denver really came away in the third quarter and started to put their foot down, made a couple of smaller adjustments, really figured out the Miami zone and made it so that the Heat couldn't continue to play that deep into the fourth quarter where Miami would go to that for a little bit of a change of pace. But it was a fun game with a game of runs with Jimmy Butler having some heroics late to try to keep Miami in it. You know, I continue to think that the, the refereeing and the lack of flow throughout some of the postseason was really apparent in the first half of this game. It was still fun. It was a little bit crazy at times, but it didn't feel like there was a rhythm. And then in the second half, for better or for worse, they completely swallowed their whistles. Really, really physical game with just a foul on every possession that wasn't getting called. But both teams elevated above that, and it made for a really dramatic finish. So uh, it was an, an absolute thriller in a ton of different ways. Uh, again, I think the all of the credit belongs with Denver here. No shame from Miami for losing to a team like this. I know they had a lead. Uh, earlier in this game, but the way that the Denver Nuggets can just always find a way to to trust each other, to trust in their teammates, to find a way to come back and piece it together was really on full display. And then once they were shredding Miami's zone, it kind of felt like it was inevitable. Like there's just not enough firepower from this Heat team to stop Denver one-on-one. Yeah, so I, I kind of want to jump off of the idea of just like offensive firepower in, in a lot of ways. And I think that one thing that we always talk about is how wings are incredibly important in today's NBA wings. You have to have wings, right? I don't know that the nuggets have, let me rephrase. Most of the nuggets, best players are not traditional wings. They can guard wings on some level, but they aren't traditional wings. Like, Aaron Gordon's like basically your traditional four man, like he's a power forward. Uh, Michael Porter Jr. is six foot 10 and like creates shots. Jamal Murray is a six foot five point guard. Nikola Jokic is Nikola Jokic, and he is an alien uh, who was placed in Serbia to dominate basketball worlds. It's intriguing to me that the NBA spends all of this time talking about wings. And undeniably, like going out and getting Contavious Caldwell Pope, drafting Christian Brown, finding role player wings in order to create versatility is incredibly valuable. But I think that what this Nuggets win more than anything shows is finding complementary skill sets is more important than anything else in today's NBA. Finding talent and finding talent that complements one another. Now, why wings are so important in general, and I still think wings are important, is because they provide versatility for you to be able to have that complementary talent. But you can do it without wings, is like a majority of your best players, right? And again, like seriously, Contavious Cobalt Pope, Christian Brown, even like Bruce Brown to an extent, like kind of plays wingish style basketball. Although I don't even know that I would call him a traditional wing. These guys are important, but 
more than anything, the name of the game in the NBA is talent and then finding talent that makes each other work and that lifts each other up in complementary ways. And I think that more than anything is the story of this Denver championship, especially given who their best player is in Nikola Jokic, who lifts everybody up through his sheer presence on a basketball court offensively, especially, but also he clearly has improved defensively and I want to give him some flowers there. So this feels like a very validating win for the the style of roster construction that I've always believed in, which is step one is to find your franchise pillars, the guys who are just so talented to be your star players. And Denver did that. They acquired Kali Jokic through the draft they drafted Jamal Murray and they waited and they gave those guys patience to grow into their roles and to grow together. And I want to talk about patience a little bit later down the line, but in terms of how they built the the players in this roster, they found those guys and then they have tinkered with and retooled the pieces around them. Like you talked about to find the guys who best complement their stars, their tent pole franchise pieces, the pillars with, with the, which which the organization has been built. Aaron Gordon was a huge domino in making that happen, pulling the trigger on the trade that got him a couple years ago. The way that they have drafted around those guys, the way that they have signed veterans like Contavious Caldwell-Pope, who comes in with championship experience, is always dependable and durable to be on the floor, defends multiple positions, drills shots as a low-maintenance guy. Bruce Brown, the ultimate competitor, who's going to come in and play whatever position, whatever role, defend whatever position you ask of him. Veteran leaders that are coming off the bench and guys like Jeff Green or maybe even DeAndre Jordan, who I know at times his presence on court has been picked apart, but he has turned into a real dependable voice in that locker room. The way that this has been envisioned was about the people and the teammates first, the on-court fit for how they exacerbate the strengths of their stars second, And I think the patience to continue to let them flow and gel together year after year and not panic and blow it up, trust in the vision, trust that that will come over time once the chemistry gets there. All of those fingerprints are on this championship victory for the Denver Nuggets. And and look, we'll get to it in a little bit here. I have this real strong belief, and it comes from growing up as a kid and reading the book of basketball by Bill Simmons, that he talked about a conversation he once had with the great Isaiah Thomas. Troy Pistons point guard. And he said that the secret about basketball is that it's not about basketball. It's about all of the other things that go on around a team and around an organization. And from top to bottom, this Nuggets team has been put together in a way that just has great people, dependable teammates, and unbelievable chemistry. And it shows through in the way that they play. Yeah, I think that's all really right. I mean, you look at the guys that they have drafted and brought in i mean it's a lot of unselfish dudes at the end of the day like they really only took one risk on a guy that like could be construed as unselfish in some way in michael porter jr and he fit in to a t right like he he made it work he got his money and he has become the ultimate role player who's improved defensively and knocks down shots and cuts and does runs out in transition does everything you ask for from somebody like Michael Porter Jr. And I think it's an immense credit to him that he's been willing to do that. Uh, Go ahead. And and he was great tonight on the glass 
And, and that's something that yep. he's been a lot better at in this entire series is when he is guarded by a smaller guy, he's willing to go in there and crash the offensive glass of so find ways to be more physical. I think that was a knock on him early in his career kind of floated more towards the three point line. Like he yeah. has yeah, made yeah. the adjustments that he has needed to, in order to maximize who he is. And that's what happens when you cultivate a culture of it being about the group and the team and not about you as you force everybody to kind of face the areas where they need to improve, continue to buy into that or you leave. So, and then you look past him, Jamal Murray is a scorer and he was someone that people wondered, is he a one or a two? He proved that he could play point and, you know, especially you look, I don't know what happened tonight, but you look at the first four games of the series, he was spectacular as a distributor. Uh, you look at what Nikola Jokic has done to elevate these guys. And look, Nikola Jokic is the part of this puzzle that is not replicable for anybody. You're not going to draft the best player in the world at 42 in the middle of a Taco Bell commercial every year um, or in any other organization. I frankly, I don't know if that will ever happen again. Mm. Like especially the Taco Bell part, but like even drafting your best player at 42, that's crazy. Yeah. Like that, that is just genuinely wild. There are guys that miss, like don't get, don't, there are misses in the draft every year. It, it happens. Right. But man, to hit that guy yeah. in the way that they did, that's what's not replicable for NBA teams. But I think everything else is like fairly replicable the way they went about building this thing. They went out, like you said, they found the guy that they truly believed in. The good news was that by the time they truly knew that he was the star, they already had uh, Jamal Murray in place, right? So they had the number two already as well. Then you take a risk on Michael Porter Jr. That was a risk. Like they took him 14th overall in the draft for a reason. He was, I've been doing some Michael Porter stuff a little bit here and there uh, to like go back and look through history. Uh, I certainly don't mean this is any disrespect toward John Gavoni, but like ESPN, like John wrote a week before the draft, Michael Porter Jr. will fall no lower than seventh. Uh, uh, It's unlikely, I think he said that Michael Porter Jr. will fall lower than seventh. And then draft night comes, he falls, he's falling, he's falling, free falling through the draft. And teams have to make like an on the clock decision on this. That's what's crazy, right? Like teams have to go, okay, like we have to make a choice. We know Michael Porter's talent. We know he's incredibly skilled, but the back injury is there. How do we believe in this? Maybe you get like a copy of the medicals like quickly, right? And you make an assessment and I mean, undeniably they nailed that. So like they decided to be like a little bit, risky in terms of their assessment. They decided to go with a more variable player, which is what you can do when you have Nikola Jokic in place and Jamal Murray in place already. And then they go out and they get the perfect compliment for Nikola Jokic and Aaron Gordon. And then they go out and they get the perfect compliment in Contavious Caldwell Pope. And then they get another one in Bruce Brown. And then they get another one in Christian Brown. Like, It's just ticking every single box. All of this, everything Denver has done makes perfect sense. Perfect. Like across the board, it it all makes perfect sense. And I think that that is what is so impressive about what they've been able to build. 
it's hard for me to go through any, I'm sure I could find like individual decisions that I disagree with. Like, frankly, like the DeAndre Jordan decision and like continuing to play him is something I disagree with. I've never been like a big Zeke Najee guy. I didn't have a first round grade on him. Me too. Bones Highland, I think I had like a 32 or 33 overall grade on. I can continue to like nitpick here and there, but every player in terms of their rotation, they haven't skipped a beat. You know, like that's the crazy thing. And again, Jokic is not a replicable piece of this, if only because, I don't know if you remember this, but like they drafted two guys ahead of Nikola Jokic in that draft. <laughs> like it's just silly. Um, it's amazing. And I kind of want to talk about a couple of general roster thoughts after this, but I'll just kind of give you the floor. I mean, it's the way that all of the pieces fit to me that is replicable. Like you go out, you get guys that make sense next to your star and it will elevate the star. It helps when the star is elevating everybody else, but being able to elevate the star is the most important thing in my opinion. And we saw it by the way, in Sacramento this year too, going out and getting Demonis Sabonis and uh, then having him with De'Aaron Fox surround those guys with shooting surround those guys with like potential, you know, solid defenders on the wings. Right. Again, your best players don't have to be wings, but just go find the pieces that make sense and it'll elevate everybody else. I think that's the key. They found the right players. And I'm really glad that hopefully this will put to bed the narrative that your best player can't be more of a back to the basket type of player or a big man, right? That, perhaps those guys don't win as much in the modern NBA that no, it's just about finding elite talent and then surrounding those guys as best you can. You can win with so many different styles and different players who are your best. You just have to make sure that you have the right pieces to, like you said, bring out the best in them and have them bring out the best in others. I think that there's a huge, you know, patience is just a theme of this for me because as you're talking about Michael Porter and Jamal Murray, I'm sitting here thinking about all the games and the seasons that they have missed due to injury and the various opportunities that this Denver Nuggets front office had to hit the panic button and see, you know, a now multi-time MVP in Jokic and say, do we need to surround him with guys who can help him right away? His window is closing all of those arguments that we hear and they stayed the course and they gave Jamal a chance to rehab, come back from his injury and they trusted in Porter to regain form and, and be the, the type of potential player that he was once upon a time. And it all paid off. And, and I want to give a tip of the cap to Tim Connolly, Baltimore's finest, for kind of constructing yeah. this roster in that regard. I know he's not there to celebrate the championship now that he's in Minnesota, but his fingerprints, again, all over the initial buildings of how this roster was put together. Um, the, the one last thing for me that I would want to bring up is – Going back to this conversation between Isaiah Thomas, right? That the secret to basketball is that it's not about basketball. Denver did something this year, and this isn't meant to be disparaging in any type of way, but they made a move that probably in a vacuum returned them less than equal value when they traded Bones Highland away to the Los Angeles Clippers. But I think there was a little bit of identification on their part that what they needed to value most this year in order to win a championship were guys who were all on the same page in that locker room. And 
I, I'm thinking a lot about that kind of particular moment, the identification from the front office to maybe move on from a talented young player if it didn't fit the vision and the collective unity that they were really needing from that team. I think that's absolutely a great call. And I'm glad that you brought up the idea of patience with this team as well, that they could have jumped off. Like you look at somebody like the reason I bring this up is that Rudy Gobert just tweeted Rudy Gobert stopped tweeting, but like, Rudy Gobert tweeted, happy for the Nuggets, beautiful team basketball all year around, failed over and over in the previous years, didn't quit on their guys, and Nikola Jokic will finally get the respect he deserves. think the didn't quit on their guys is the hilarious statement there from Rudy Gobert after they traded Donovan Mitchell and Rudy. Uh, but I, I, look, Utah could have continued to plug away at this thing, right? Could have continued to try and battle and fight obviously you know rudy believes a couple years older than nicola is and doesn't have the offensive game he's not as good of a player as nicola Jokic is but there are teams that can continue to fight like this and denver decided to continue to fight for what they believed in in terms of their core there are times where organizations jump ship too early denver could have jumped ship at any point with Michael Porter or with Jamal Murray. And they didn't, they decided not to, they decided we're going to just, we're just going to run this thing back and we're going to see what happens. And I think that's a really, really, really good point there by you that Calvin Booth, Tim Connolly, certainly believed in this group, didn't jump ship, didn't decide to take what could have been an easier way, could have been a harder way. I don't know, but certainly could have been a different route. And instead, trusted the guys that they believed in from the jump and went from there. Yep. Okay. So general roster building lessons from the nuggets that I want to run by you in terms of the way that this roster is built or, you know, true, true or false. Let's say on some of these things, I, I don't, I don't believe all of these things. I'm just saying like, they're interesting talking points. Okay. For a long time, it was believed that you couldn't have a high usage center. And by for a long time, I mean like the last six or seven years. Couldn't have a high usage center. Couldn't have a center who was the centerpiece of your offense. Uh, couldn't have a center that was deficient defensively. You needed a great interior big. All, all due respect to Jokic, he's not like a great interior defensive big. He's a smart defensive big who is good at scrambling and communicating and a number of different things, but he doesn't really lock down the paint. Doesn't, you know, destroy uh, the rim or anything controls the defensive glass undeniably like with his sheer presence, but not a guy that like is your primary rim protector. Also a guy that has a high usage offense. Do you think that Jokic is an anomaly in this regard? Or do you believe that, someone like the Kings could look at this and say, we have Demonis Sabonis, similar kind of vibes, probably not as good as Jokic. Maybe we could build up other pieces of our roster to equal the talent level of the Denver Nuggets. Um, Do you think that they could look at this as a blueprint or is Jokic a one of one? 
I don't think he's a one of one, but I still think that building around a big man in that regard or, or the type of player that you described, who's more offensive minded than defensive minded at the five, it, it just you have a smaller margin for error in terms of how you can build that roster to win a championship. Like Denver didn't get to this point without surrounding him with guys at the three and the four who are 6'10", 6'9", really good, smart defenders and have length to blanket him so that he can play more at the level when guarding ball screens defensively if he needs to. He can hedge and recover in, in some of those moments where he has to. This doesn't happen if you know there aren't positive role-playing defenders that Denver has drafted to come off the bench and play in the second unit. So I, I think it is possible, and it's been proven that way. I don't think Jokic is going to be the only guy that's possible to get here, but you have to figure out what your identity is going to be and lean fully into that. And yes, you know the the, the one name and one guy who I, I know is going to come up in this conversation inevitably is Joel Embiid in the Philadelphia 76ers. Mm-hmm. And I think that with Philly, they have started to lean a little bit more into just surrounding Joel with a ton of shooting. It's what they did this year. They had one of the best, if not the best, three-point shooting teams in the entire league. And that brought them, in my opinion, to the spot closest to where they can really be a formidable team throughout the playoffs. So figure out how to surround that player with the best pieces that you need in order to win and then stick with that blueprint and you can have success. Uh, So certainly not just Jokic, you can do it, but it helps when the guy that you have is probably the best player in the world. So Nikola Jokic obviously helps in this regard as well, but you look back through the list of NBA champions, Denver Nuggets, Golden State Warriors, the Bucks, the 2020 Lakers to an extent. The Raptors don't really fit this, but certainly the Warriors uh, in their three of four did. The Nuggets this year finished third in the NBA in passes per game. Do you believe that there is an inherent advantage to playing a ball movement centric offense versus a more heliocentric ball dominant offense like the Dallas Mavericks? Yes, I certainly do as a coach. Um, And I think that it works that way. It's the passing numbers and the success that comes isn't because you have a coach or an offensive system that says, please share the ball and discourages isolation play. It's because you have a bunch of guys who are unselfish and throw extra passes and who make what I call the right kick out decision. When the ball finds them spotting up on the perimeter, they know when to shoot it. They know when to throw it to somebody else. They know when to repenetrate it. Guys who are smart basketball players and have a good feel for what decision to make, when to make it, and are capable of doing all of those things of passing, driving, and shooting those are winning basketball players. So to me, it's not as Mm -hmm. much about the offensive system that Denver is running or any of these teams are running. And it's just about the collection of talent, all having the ability, the ability to pass dribble and shoot that brings out how many passes they throw a game as a result. So I'll be honest. I don't really think this matters. If you look at, I prefer aesthetically to watch, teams to pass a lot and get heavy ball movement and everything. Uh, the Nuggets finished, you know, top five in the league in passing each of the last two years. The Warriors obviously play a very ball movement offense. The Bucks actually finished, I believe, third to last in the NBA in passes in 2021. 
uh, which is you know, second to last, I'm sorry, in passes in 2021. Uh, and then both the Raptors and the Lakers were like middle of the pack. So that's your last, you know, five NBA champions. Sure. By the way, five very different teams, five very different styles, five very different uh, circumstances. I personally don't think that you need to play one way or the other. I prefer to watch a more ball movement centric scheme, certainly, but I think that you can make it work either way. I just think it's an interesting question. And I would imagine that it is something that will be discussed uh, within front offices over the course of the next little while here. Sure. Next. This Nuggets team in its rotation, certainly in the playoffs, really did not have anybody under six foot five. They're a big team. Like they play big. They shrink the court defensively in a big way. Do you think that there is a significant inherent advantage to not having small guards? Is that something that you take away from this? Yes. Yes, it is. And I, I don't know if I take it away specifically from this series. I think it's something that we've kind of known and discussed as a, a basketball fandom community for the last several years. And we've seen young, uh, smaller players kind of disappearing from the league in, in droves. I do think that that's important, that it prevents you from having a significant disadvantage that can get picked apart in a lot of different ways. You even look back through you know real rotations over the course of the last five nba champions look at the bucks for instance drew holiday chris middleton pat Connaughton, pj tucker brooke lopez bobby portis that's really the rotation uh bryn forbes like played occasionally he's probably the outlier to this but for the most part it's size, I think, that is critical. Being able to shrink the court uh, is really, really important in the playoffs. And you can even look at the Lakers, by the way, back in 2020. This is a team that had LeBron, AD, Caruso, Kentavious Caldwell-Pope, Danny Green, Markeith Morris, Kyle Kuzma were their main seven. And then they had Dwight Howard and Rajon Rondo, who weren't all that versatile defensively but certainly were valuable defensively uh, in a number of ways. So I think that it is really important to have guys who can be versatile size-wise in the NBA. It doesn't rule out guys like Scoot Henderson for me, who we'll talk about momentarily. It does not rule out. I think John Morant has to improve defensively like for them to win a title, like undeniably, but it doesn't rule him out to me uh, in any way, shape or form because, oh, by the way, on that Raptors team, Kyle Lowry existed and Kyle Lowry is small, but he plays bigger than his size. If you're going to have the smaller guys out there, I think they need to play a little bit bigger than what their size is in order to make it work uh, at the next level uh, in the playoffs at the very least. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's completely fair. And again, the other side of the equation here is if you're going to be one of those smaller guys who's on the floor, 
either have tremendous length for your position, because I think length is as big of a factor as of this in, as height is in some regard. Like you want ideally guys who are strong enough to hold their own and, and guard physically up the lineup, like a Kyle Lowry or a Marcus Smart, for example. But length is important because that is what's disruptive on ball. It, it takes away vision for passers. It just allows you a little bit more margin for error to play backwards if you're at an athletic disadvantage and play off your man. Uh, length matters in that regard. And then there's also the other side of the ball too, which is important. Like if you are small, you can still make it by being an elite, elite offensive player. And those guys, I think you can still win a championship with in some regard as well. We have now seen teams really across the spectrum in terms of three-point rate win titles in each of the last three years. The Bucks finished 12th in three-point rate, three-point attempt rate, this is. The Warriors finished second in three-point attempt rate. And the Nuggets were actually 21st in three-point attempt rate this year. They were not a team that like lived and died by the three-pointer by any stretch of the imagination, even though they had very strong spacing on the court due to the presence of having four threats out there that could shoot at all times. Do you believe that this title tells us anything about the importance of shooting in any way, shape, or form in regard to team building? In terms of, and I just want to make sure I'm, I'm framing the question correctly here, in terms of thinking that you don't need to be able to shoot threes at a high volume in order to win a title. Is that kind of what you're hinting at? Sure, we'll go with that. Okay, so I just threw words together as I was, I'm like <laughs> kind of going by the seat of my pants here on this. So for me, and I keep going back to a conversation I had on the Box One podcast that I host with Caitlin Cooper a couple weeks ago, when we were talking about how spot-up shooters are guarded is much more important than necessarily what they shoot or how many shots they take from three. Are they respected in a way that forces the defense to defend them when they stand on the three-point line? So I tend to think that it's less about attempt rate. It's less about, you know, what actual percentage year over year everybody should, is he 36% or is he 38? Like, it's about whether they're respected by the defense enough where they have to be guarded out there. And I think that's the common thread that I find from a lot of the champions or the really good teams recently is they don't have non-shooters that are on the floor kind of spacing around their star players and, and allowing them opportunities to clutter up the lane. Final question. Okay. Is this entire conversation fucking stupid? <laughs> Because there are just so many different ways to win an NBA title at the end of the day. We just saw a guy in Nikola Jokic who, you know, certainly not a traditional looking big, but also like breaks many molds in terms of what people have thought over the last decade, let's say, in terms of titles. Uh, we've just now seen in the last few years Giannis win a title, a guy that is certainly a big we've seen Anthony Davis and LeBron combined to win a title as like a twosome on the court. Uh, we saw a golden state warriors team last year that is on like, frankly, the last legs of a dynasty at this point carrying on 
at the end of the day and finding a way to win with veteran players as opposed to guys that are quote unquote in their prime. Is this entire thing stupid and you just keep building a team the way that you build a team and you make things that work complementary toward one another uh, at the end of the day, find your star and then build around him in a way that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. I I think that's what it comes down to, but I, I keep thinking of this phrase margin for error as being really important in how you build a team, right? You want to not just collect really good players. You want to minimize your margin for error so that certain teams or schemes or game plans can't thwart you. And whether it's a lot of wings and versatile defensive players, positional length, three-point shooting to space the floor, different handlers, guys who are willing to play different roles in the locker room, like all of these things factor in to just shrinking your margin for error because you can match up with yes. so many different type of teams and extend your title window. I think that that's absolutely correct. I think that you need to find a way to essentially give yourself the biggest pathway in order to find talent in the NBA and in order to find talent that complements itself. There are guys that take that runway away. If you are a player who can't shoot and like struggles to make decisions, that's what's hard. Maybe this is the big key here. You look through the last group of NBA title, you know, winners, right? I don't think this conversation is stupid for what it's worth. I I just kind of brought that up because I I think it's a fun thing to say. Um, You can skin the cat, quote unquote, in any way. But I think that the key to it is finding complementary players and finding high IQ players is actually the big thing. You look at the last group of NBA champions, certainly this Denver team, I don't think anybody would argue this is a high IQ basketball team. The Golden State Warriors winning four of the last, what is that, nine titles? Nobody would tell you that this is anything other than like a genius level basketball team, right? Stephen Curry, Draymond Green, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? The Los Angeles Lakers, sneaky, underrated, really fucking smart team. Yep. Anthony Davis is a genius defensively. LeBron James is one of the smartest basketball players to ever play. Alex Caruso, Danny Green, super high field basketball players that really make this work at a high level. The Milwaukee Bucks, Giannis, like people act like he's a battering ram, but he can make passes. He can make plays with the ball in his hands off the live dribble. You look around him. The group of guys that we said they surrounded him with. Chris Middleton, super high IQ basketball player. Drew Holiday, very high IQ basketball player. Um, uh, you know, Pat Connaughton, high IQ basketball player. Like, Brooke Lopez, incredibly high IQ basketball player, right? That, to me, is the constant across all of these champions. Toronto Raptors, you know, certainly... Kawhi Leonard, but also, more importantly, Kyle Lowry, right? Mark Gasol. Danny Green was on that team as well. 
finding guys that are super high IQ basketball players that make life easier for everybody else. Kevin Love with the Cleveland Cavaliers. Um, certainly LeBron again fits that mold. Kyrie is a genius offensively at the very least. Uh, Matthew Dellavedova was like valuable on that team. Super high IQ basketball player, right? Like Richard Jefferson, old wily veteran at that point, you know, didn't have the athleticism he had when he came into the NBA, but very high IQ, smart basketball player, Channing Fry, same deal. You just look across the league. You can afford to have one or two guys, right? You, you can afford to have like a couple guys that you might not define in this way, but you gotta have a big group of them that can really think the game at the highest level. That to me is the common connector of these teams. I totally agree. And that's something I've taken away a lot from thinking about this Miami heat team. And I want to give a quick tip of the hat to them because they have maximized who they are. I don't think any of us envisioned two, three years ago, a team that would play in the play in tournament end up going to the NBA finals. And the Miami heat just did that. Absolutely sensational test of wills that they have on that roster. The guys who just are competitors through and through. So it's the combination of pass, dribble, shoot, make the right decisions, smart basketball players who can fit on ball or off ball. It's shooting, it's positional length, but it's role acceptance and role awareness as well. That I think a lot of these championship level teams, they ask people and players to come in and sacrifice guys who have maybe played a role a little bit above what they're doing right now elsewhere in the league. And they have to learn how to scale that back and they have to learn how to accept it. That's a a really important part of a championship team. Everyone has a role to play. Are they aware of what that role is and do they accept their responsibility and bringing it in that role every single night? And the, the last thing for me is kind of that competitiveness and we, we know it with the Miami Heat, and we talk about Heat culture all the time, and they're just unwillingness to back down from anyone or any challenge. I mean, you look at this Nuggets team as well. Bruce Brown has been a winner at every level, an insane competitor, dating back to BABC in Boston and Vermont Academy, going yep. to Miami. Like Every stop that he has been at, coaches and teammates and people who have been around him have labeled him an insatiable competitor and a winner. Christian Brown has won at every level that he has been at from high school to winning a national championship last year at Kansas to being a a rookie playing minutes in the NBA finals and winning a championship. He is a winner. He's an MFer and a, a competitor. He's confident. He talks some shit sometimes, but he is a competitor and he wants that thing. Those are the role players that you need. The guys like Contavious Caldwell Pope who want to play 82 games a year. And then every single postseason game after that, because they want to be depended upon by their teammates. Like it is as much the off court stuff and the complexion and the makeup of the human beings on that team that allow you to win a championship as it is about all of the skill things and the the physical traits that we've discussed earlier. You need all of them. Yep. I think that's dead on. Okay. Let's take a quick commercial break. By the way, I, love this idea as a podcast uh podcast series on how to optimize rosters around current stars uh that's a fun off-season target for us yeah that's that's something that i think we're gonna do okay let's take a quick break and then we will 
dive into some NBA draft stuff. Congrats to the Denver Nuggets. Congrats to Denver Nuggets fans. You guys certainly deserve this. You guys earned it, uh, especially the Nuggets players, given that they're the ones that actually did it. But uh, congratulations to everybody involved and who roots for this team. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, For instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla Minus One recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan. And you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon Prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. Nord VPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash gametheory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash gametheory to claim your account. nordvpn.com slash gametheory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash gametheory. Okay. Adam Spinella, we are back. We're going to talk a bit about Scoot Henderson. Scoot Henderson, my number two overall prospect in the 2023 NBA draft. And I will not be coming off of that, uh, by the way, over the course of the next little while. Let's talk about this report from Shams Charania. The New Orleans Pelicans have interest in moving up in the draft order in order to take Scoot Henderson, which is intriguing in a number of respects, right? I'm fascinated to see if they're going to be able to do this. It's something that I floated on this podcast. 
I wonder if Brandon Ingram is the guy that like can unlock a potential move into the top three. We will see whether or not that ends up being the case. When you saw this report, what was your initial reaction? My initial reaction was trying to figure out what or who would get New Orleans to move up, right? Whether it is a Brandon Ingram, whether it's other pieces in capital, what would the asking price be in return that the Pelicans would have to give up? But I sneakily really, really like this uh, for so many different reasons. I, I love the role players that the Pelicans have, the young role players on their roster to try to fit in different ways around Scoot Henderson. I think Willie Green is a brilliant basketball coach in a lot of different ways. Uh, I would I would love to see what, what they could do to try to commit to playing around a Scoot Henderson. So here is the fun piece of this in some respect. And this is why I think this made sense to me when I heard it. Let's go with that. The Pelicans are about to get very expensive, like extremely exceedingly expensive if they want to keep this core together. They have CJ McCollum locked into this deal over the course of the next little while. I'm going to pull up their cap sheet on uh, Spotrek as we talk. Shout out to Keith Smith, who I believe is the keeper of these uh, over there. So here we go. You can see this, correct, Adam? No, you can't see this. Now you can see this. I got it. Okay. So CJ McCollum, is signed for the next three years, descending, but let's ballpark it at $100 million. Brandon Ingram is signed for the next two years at about 70. Then the Zion extension kicks in. Then they're going to have to pay Troy Mur- or Trey Murphy in 2025. And they also have a Herb Jones extension decision coming up, which, by the way, I would imagine that there will be some synergy there in terms of, you know, team and agency in terms of, do we pick up this club option? Do we decline this club option? Do we try and extend him sooner rather than later in some regard? Is there a world where they try to extend uh, Herb Jones early in order to lock him in on a cheaper contract? Or do they wait until later on? I think that there is a real case both ways on this, to be honest. I'm fascinated. Their, their cap sheet is very expensive in a hurry. You go through the totals here. They've already got 129 on the books for 2024-25. They've already got 77 on the books for 25-26. That, I believe, is just Zion and uh, CJ McCollum as well. As, is it going to include... This is going to include Dyson Daniels as well. So... That's $77 million for three guys without a big, not including Trey Murphy's extension, which, by the way, I think Trey Murphy is going to be a $30 million player. I'm kind of calling my shot on this now. I think he's going to be a $30 million player. Herb Jones is going to be a $15 to $20 million player in all likelihood. So this gets expensive in a hurry, and we have no indication whatsoever that this seems good enough yet, frankly. 
So if you're the Pelicans, I can see a world where you look at this and go, well, why wouldn't we try and offer Brandon Ingram for Scoot Henderson? If you're moving Ingram, it has to be for a truly elite talent, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Genuinely. So I don't know if people remember this, but I certainly remember this. Look, and Mike's not the person making the decision. I'm just saying this because it's a thing. Um, Mike Schmitz had Brandon Ingram at number one over Ben Simmons in the 20, what is that, 2018 NBA draft? 2017 NBA draft. Very publicly, right? That's not proprietary information. He said it everywhere Um, in public on Twitter. Maybe 16. Who the hell knows? I think it's 16. Yeah. Yeah, it could be any year. Years are a construct at this point. Um, Additionally, Brandon Ingram is from the state of North Carolina, proudly from the state of North Carolina. And could he really welcome going home and being like an icon in Charlotte and playing with LaMelo Ball and everything? I'm just saying, like, I think there's some synergy with Brandon Ingram in both of these places. And there's some synergy in this roster getting inexpensive. It's or a bit less inexpensive at some point. I think that makes more sense than Brandon or than Zion Williamson. Zion Williamson still has like MVP caliber talent. Might not, have, might not have MVP caliber decision-making off the court, but certainly as MVP caliber talent. And if I am the Pelicans and I'm trying to maximize my upside, I probably have to keep Zion. Where do you fall on all of this as we talk through this as like a real interesting thing to look through well I, I think the contract status is always the first place you have to look and trying to figure out future outlook of an organization and with murphy and herb jones coming in the next couple of years like this has a chance to turn into what we're seeing in atlanta right now where they're like super super expensive and deep and like they have good players but they're not quite synergistic enough they're not quite to that championship level of a group and then you're stuck wondering what's your way out of it. How do you improve moving forward? So that's a territory you very much don't want to be in. I think here so much of it just rides on the health and availability of a guy like Zion that you never really know what you should pull the trigger on, right? Do you run it back with this group and think that a healthy Zion can lead you there? Or do you surround him with other like primary creators and a guy like Scoot who can handle the burden on the moments when Zion's not in the lineup a little bit more. Cause I think this new Orleans team we saw this year just lacked enough paint pressure in, in every consistent regard. They had shooters, they had good role players around them without Zion. They couldn't create easy buckets or get into the lane a ton. So maybe just adding a guy like scoot next to Zion is the right insurance policy for some of that allows you to split the difference. 
a lot of conflicting thoughts, but it, it all comes back to just the availability of Zion long-term. Like that's going to be what determines New Orleans overall ceiling and championship contention. So here is the next question that I'm sure Pelicans fans have some curiosity about. Is there a way to move up without moving either Zion or Brandon Ingram? And this is where we can go to Real GM. Shout out Real GM. Uh Big fan of your work as well. They have a number of future picks and assets. They have all of their own future picks, including the number 14 overall pick this season. They have a 2024 pick from the Los Angeles Lakers. They have a pick swap with Milwaukee in 2024. They have a 2025 first round pick from Milwaukee that is somehow weirdly protected looking through the obligations there. They have a 2026 swap with Milwaukee and they have a 2027 first from Milwaukee. So they have one, two, three additional first round picks. Plus they have two pick swaps as well. It looks like, and Oh, by the way, if, you're considering moving some other players here, right? You might be able to get additional assets moving forward. So could you do something like CJ McCollum and five first round picks for Scoot Henderson? Is that something that you consider CJ McCollum, potentially a good fit with LaMelo ball in Charlotte? You could do the Gordon Hayward contract in order to kind of bring back some money if you wanted to. Yeah. Is the, or like you could do the Terry Rozier contract if Charlotte wants to get off the Terry Rozier deal. Honestly, that might be a little bit better. Yeah. But again, yeah. if you're New Orleans, you're capping out already at a certain point. Does this make sense in any way? Can you do this without Brandon Ingram or Zion Williamson? So I want to be, I'm not the biggest capologist in the world, right? With all of the, what it lines up dollar for dollar, what's the the best value to get in trades. I think that for where Scoot Henderson is at and looking at the teams that New Orleans would get these other picks from, right? The Lakers, a couple from Milwaukee, who still projects to probably be pretty good at those point in times. I don't yeah. know if those swaps will be worth anything, if, if even convey, uh, if yeah. New Orleans gets to where they want to go, like that's a very meaningless type of, of swap to have. So I don't know if that's enough to really pair with CJ McCollum in that regard. But again, I'm, I'm just not as much of an expert on trying to figure out what v- fair value is in a lot of these trades. You'd have to like really convince me that you think Milwaukee is going to fall off of a cliff by yeah. 2026. Yeah. The 2026 draft, for people who don't know, is expected to be the next like enormous draft. Cam Boozer, uh, I don't know that Cooper Flag will necessarily be in there. He has a decision to make in terms of like could he reclassify or not, just in terms of age. I don't mean to say that I have any intel in terms of him doing that or not doing that. I'm just saying that he has the ability to potentially do that if he does not. He will be in the 2026 NBA draft. Uh, you know, Darren Peterson and Koa Pete and uh, AJ DeBonsa and, you know, X, Y, and Z. Like, that is the next draft that NBA evaluators are looking forward to, just straight point blank, right? 
So if you believe that that Bucks team is going to fall off of a cliff by 2026, that is probably the most valuable asset within that bunch. I don't think that they're going to fall off of a cliff is the problem. Yeah. And, and this is, this is what I keep coming back to Sam, right? Like the reason you suck is to put yourself in a position to get a Scoot Henderson. I would have to be absolutely blown away and certain that I'm getting an equal star player. We just spent 35, 40 minutes at the top of the show talking about how it's all about acquiring your tentpole star first and foremost, and then surrounding them with talent. Like Charlotte and a lot of these teams, like Portland at the top of the draft, you still need those tentpole star players. Scoot Henderson, in both of our opinions, is that type of guy. I would have to be so blown away by any of this. Like it doesn't matter about future first round picks and throwing like 10, 20 of them at me. If none of them ever give me an opportunity to add that 10 pole star player, I don't want to do the damn deal. I want scoop. I agree, which is why at the end of the day, I believe that it has to include Brandon Ingram or Zion Williamson. If we're talking. There's just no other way around it. And that's where this gets hard. Uh, If I am the, you know, New Orleans Pelicans, I'm probably intrigued to do that. Given my cap sheet coming up, I can really clear the books and like get things moving. Maybe I don't believe in Zion Williamson anymore. I don't know. I, I, I would want to continue to bet on the upside, but they have more intel than I do. And I'm at least willing to understand that from their perspective. It would be hard for me, I would say, to move on in that way. Uh, it, it, it would be very, very hard for me, I would say, to move on in that way. Yeah, and, and this is the tough part for front offices because a lot of times the scouting departments can be separated in some regard. You have your your draft scouts who are looking at the future wave of players, and then you have your pro personnel scouts and guys who are evaluating around the league what players are worth and value. And it's up to the, the general manager to really make those decisions as to which pathway is going to provide more value for your organization. But if you're the draft guy in that room for Charlotte or Portland – like you better be selling the hell out of Scoot Henderson in this regard and making sure that before a decision is made to get out of pick number two or number three, your boss knows just how damn good Scoot Henderson can be. And in my opinion is likely to be final choice here. Would you move Brandon Ingram for Scoot Henderson? If I'm new Orleans. Yes. If you're new Orleans. Hell yeah. I would too. Yeah. I would too. It clears their book. If there wasn't the additional factor of them being kind of capped out where like they are in a tough spot here, I would not. Uh, I would think about it more. Maybe is a better way to put it. But given the fact that their cap sheet is about to become a nightmare. Yes, I would do it. Um, I would not do Brandon Ingram and Trey Murphy. If that's what the offer was. I would not do. Brandon Ingram and three first round picks or something like that. But I I would move Brandon Ingram in a deal for Scoot Henderson. I would. I think he's that good. 
Me too. I think he's that talented. And I, I like Brandon Ingram a lot. Like I, I've been, you know, I feel like leading the hive on Brandon Ingram for a while now in the national sphere, at least. I think Brandon Ingram's outstanding. You look at Brandon Ingram's last like 30 games this year with the Pelicans. He was unbelievable. He was absolutely unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, scoots that guy, man. Scoots that guy. Scoots that dude. Uh, would you move Zion Williamson for Scoot Henderson? It's it's a hard question for me to answer because I'm so limited in the intel on like health and recovery and all the like. I just this is what's crazy, right? I, like I Bra- Brandon Ingram has undeniably had a better career than Zion Williamson so far, like yeah. unequivocally. But Zion's ceiling. He's been just like bonkers when he's been on the court. He's been one of the 10 best players in the league. Yep. I don't think I'd try. I don't think I would, but like, I I also don't have enough information to say what his future is going to look like. And maybe somebody else does. Like, I, I, uh, I don't know. I don't think I would. I would consider it pretty strongly. Uh, I, I don't have enough intel on Zion, but yeah, I, I don't know. But by the way, like here, here's the deal at the end of the day. Uh, I, I would imagine that this does not happen. <laughs> just, just being realistic. Like it probably does not happen because things like this rarely happen. But I think the Pelicans have been the team that makes a lot of sense for this for a while. I've mentioned it on the show before for a reason. And it's because like it ticks almost every box in my opinion, in terms of how a deal gets done. If you're uh, the Hornets or the Blazers, you have to be going out and getting a second star. Maybe like if you're the Blazers and you're under ownership decree that you have to win now and the Blazers take Brandon Miller at two, maybe this maybe this is it maybe brandon ingram is the guy right like maybe brandon ingram's the guy again like we know that schmitz loved him and if you pair brandon ingram with damian lillard and you have jeremy uh grant and you end up with like it's hard though because in that case it's got to be like brandon ingram and 14 probably for number three, Anthony Simons and Yusuf Nurkic, because that's really like the only way that the money works in like yeah. a substantial way. Um, or that's the easiest way the money works. Like it, you might be able to make it work a different way, but I'd have to like really dig into like the, the cap stuff on it. And like Simons three and Nurkic is like a bit aggressive. I think like I would want something back. So yeah, I don't know. Um, and here's the other thing if I'm, so I've seen people bring up the idea of like, okay, like what if you did Lillard? What if you did, you know, I see Phoenix, uh, plays in the comments saying Pascal Siakam. I, I love Pascal Siakam. I-, I think he's like a genuinely great player. Like frankly, probably is a-, a better basketball player than Brandon Ingram. It's a little bit close to me, but like Pascal turns 30 next year yeah. and if I am, and by the way, he's on a, um, 
he's on an expiring contract. Like there's, I don't think, I think it'd be very, very difficult to do that, but like Brandon Ingram's 25 right now, like there's a real substantial difference. I, I think that if you're moving one of these picks, you need to be getting back a younger superstar um, or a younger star at the very least. Yeah. yeah. So that makes sense. That's, that's where I'm at on this. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think the Pelicans can do this without Ingram personally. And if they are able to do it without Ingram, I would be blown away uh, or Zion one of the two. Right. Um, yeah. If they, if, if they can do it without one of the two of them, like that's absurd to me from either Charlotte or, or Portland standpoint, like you don't give up a chance to have a guy like Scoot Henderson on your roster and not get a star player back. You don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Eric Marentette is saying that Nasir little Simons in three matches for Brandon Ingram. Okay. I mean, I consider Nurkic like a negative asset, so that'd be a win for me if I was Portland, but like, you know, that works too. (laughs) Sure. Um, Yeah, no, I I would never. uh, Club JJ brings up Zion and Murphy, and I'll consider them for number three. Yeah, no, I'm not doing both for now. Again, though, that comes from me. I think Trey Murphy's going to average like 20 points a game at some point. Uh, Here, Blue Blue, Blue actually asks about – Trey Murphy in the comments here. Trey Murphy, I think, is the kind of player that you win basketball games with at an exceptionally high level. I think he is like this next group's Mikael Bridges, or like this next, like, you know, generation's Mikael Bridges at the end of the day. He's what Um, we talked about earlier, Sam. Like, he's a big, long wing who shoots threes and spaces the floor, makes good decisions off the catch, grew up as a guard, and has those skills inherent when he wants to drive and put the ball on the floor a little bit. Great defender. Like He checks – elite character guy. He checks so many of those boxes. Yeah. No, I agree. Okay. Uh, Now comes the fun part. Do you have anything that you want to talk about uh, with this draft? Because I, I think that there are a couple of other things that I have. Uh, let's let's roll with what you got, Sam. Okay. So let's talk about this Nuggets-Thunder trade. So the Nuggets yeah. uh, acquired the number 37 overall pick, uh, the least favorable of the Oklahoma City Thunder's 2024 first round picks of which I believe they have three or four. I think they might have four to be honest. Uh, And then a 2024 second for a protected 2029 first round pick. Uh, This deal did not come as a surprise to me for reasons I'll explain momentarily. Um, What are your thoughts on this? Is you, saw this go down i thought it was smart for both sides uh you know oklahoma city has a treasure trove of future assets and they probably need to start consolidating the ones currently that they have that are coming up this year and next year because there's only so much room on the roster for draft picks and younger players that you can you can really stomach and they've pretty much filled it to the brim these last three years with all those young guys so i understand trying to trade out of 37 and, and kind of move in that direction for Denver, I think adding a couple additional immediate second round picks just gives them more bites at finding that complimentary role player that we spent 35 minutes talking about that fits them. That have 37 and 40, they can either 
take two stabs at it and have two really cheap end of bench contracts that'll help them. Or they can try to consolidate those and maybe move up into like the early thirties or the back couple picks in the first and get that one guy that's on a real team control friendly contract. So I really like this from both sides. Yeah, I think this is really smart. So Denver had been on the lookout for a second round pick, you know, late first round pick for a while now from what I'd been told uh, throughout this process. And I think that they are, you know, kind of on the lookout for guys like Christian Brown that are younger that could contribute, right? That's the key for them moving forward because this roster is quite expensive. And in the new collective bargaining agreement, having guys on rookie scale contracts who can really truly help you earlier on in their career are exceptionally valuable. Uh, They are so, so, so valuable. You know, it wouldn't stun me if they took, you know, a couple of older players, right? Like that, it makes sense. You know, they took Christian Brown last year. That was a hit. You know, there's certainly some guys in this class in the second round where you can make a case for it, right? So I'm intrigued to see where that goes, but I'm not surprised to see Denver acquire another pick because that had kind of been out there behind the scenes for a little while that they liked the depth of this draft class yep. and thought that there was some stuff out there uh, that they could go out and get. Yep. Um, and, I, and I think that this is the the right range for them to be in. I don't think they wanted to move any further back than 40, so to speak. Like the, the way that I at least view this draft class is somewhere in that like 35 to 40 range is when the talent level starts to fall off a little bit. You can get guys who, could be a f- potential first rounder in that 35 to 40 range. The further down you go, yeah. it's going to be really hard to justify seeing some of those guys available. So pretty smart for Denver to get into that range. And like, my God, could you imagine a Ben Shepard or a Kobe Brown or maybe an Olivier yeah. Maxence Prosper on this roster next year? Like there are a lot of ready-made, maybe a little bit older role players who definitely fit the Nuggets mold. Yeah, I mean, just looking through my board, like you, you can easily make a case for like all of these guys. Like Andre Jackson is your Bruce Brown replacement yep. on some level. Yep. Uh, Colby Jones, if he was to fall to 37. Ben Shepard, certainly. Uh, Omax, certainly. Hawkes, certainly. Uh, Jalen Wilson, certainly. Like Jalen Wilson, I have at 37 right now. So like perfect spot, right? Uh, you can just look through, like, I think it just makes a ton of sense for all these guys. Like, you know, Tito Cruz in the comments asked about Jalen Wilson. Yeah. Jalen Wilson, like would make absolutely perfect sense. Also like very close friends with Christian Brown. Mm -hmm. So makes a ton of sense there as well. Uh, Withdrawals from the 2023 NBA draft were finalized today. The biggest name was Bobby Clintman, yeah. the six foot 10 forward from Wake Forest. He decides to uh, try his luck next year after signing a deal with Cairns uh, in the NBL. So, again, behind the scenes, uh, this has been in the works for a little while now um, as a potential outcome. You know, I've kind of uh, know some things from living over here. Let's Go with that. Sure. Uh, it, having said that, the goal for Clintman was to be in this draft. If there could be an assurance that would be given to him where he was fully comfortable with it. 
And it seems like at the end of the day, given the fact that he withdrew, that did not come to fruition. Are you surprised that uh, no team was willing to commit to Bobby Clintman fully as a promise uh, in the same way, for instance, that seemingly Orlando did with Caleb Houston last year? No, I'm not really surprised by that one, Sam. Uh, And I think part of the reason is what we kind of just alluded to, that there is a decent amount of depth and players available when you get into the late 20s and early 30s that you don't necessarily want to handcuff handcuff yourself to somebody in that range because you don't know who's going to fall or still be available. I had my my issues with Clintman in the film that I watched from him this year at Wake Forest. I get that he shoots it in theory. He's a big, longer wing who had some ball handling chops that he showed while playing overseas in Sweden. But I never thought he put all of those offensive traits together consistently. I thought he disappeared on the film for long stretches of time. And I think he's got slightly heavy feet. Like those are things that he has to be able to work on if he wants to be a switchable, versatile defender in the way that his archetype is meant to be. So there's plenty for Clintman to work on. That said, he'll be 21 next year around draft time. Like he is not as young as some of the other players that we talk about in this range or the one and done potential prospects. So Uh, I think there's a lot of improvement that he can go through, but this year in particular, that back half of the first round, early part of the second, there are enough intriguing younger guys or just more well-known commodities of the older that I do understand why he didn't get the type of promise that he thought he might've deserved. I don't know if if it's about deserved. I think that a lot of this was the goal was, to make sure people knew who sure. Bobby Clintman was. And Clintman's a fascinating prospect. Like, got invited to the combine, obviously. There's real NBA interest there. Um, you know, uh, look, I'm, I think I'm the first person that wrote like a substantial thing on Bobby, right? Like, in the national side of things. Did you see anyone do it before I did? I can't remember. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Like, I. I I, I was very early, like I interviewed him and did like a pretty real dive on him. And ultimately what my takeaway in that dive was, was pretty simple, to be honest. I thought that he was a real interesting, informed bet for a team that was willing to take him somewhere in the top 10 picks of the second round. I ended up with him at number 37 on my board. I was not like incredibly high on him. Like I had a couple people in my mentions today and like never look at your mentions. I get it. But like <laughs> I had a couple people in my mentions say like, oh, like, you know, you were so wrong about Bobby Clintman. Do you have any comment on like the fact that you just like were completely wrong about Bobby Clintman? No, because literally what I wrote was uh, if I can pull this up while we're talking like he is uh, a fascinating encapsulation of the 2023 and 2024 drafts like the 2023 draft is just way stronger should Clintman try and be there he's going to go somewhere in the second round and should he try to go into 2024 he would have a better chance of being a first round pick because that draft is not is strong 
essentially. And literally like the last line of the thing was uh, Clintman epitomizes the direction of the NBA as it searches for players with size and skill, as well as the juggling act for players and teams trying to manage the 2023 and 2024 draft processes. He takes all of these boxes, right? So yeah, like I, I, I think that this went the way that it was supposed to in many ways. And you know, should Bobby Clinton have gone back to Wake Forest? Should he have done the Are we are we back, Adam? I think I think you made it, Sam. I think you're back. Okay. Uh there are from time to time issues with international kids having access to substantial amounts of NIL money. And again, I want to be clear, like I, I don't have Intel on this piece of it uh, with Bobby Clintman, but I do wonder if uh, this was the way for Bobby Clintman to get paid as opposed to like staying at wake forest and having to uh, manage all of those many factors. Look, colleges find ways around this stuff all the time, but in cases where kids are from Europe, Bobby Clintman is from Sweden, uh, there are complications yes. at the very least yes. in this regard. And this is in some ways expedient. Also, I think his game fits better in Australia, just kind of straight up, like having a guy like that that can play in space, can play in transition, get up and down the court, uh, can dribble past shoot at six foot ten. I think his game fits better in the NBL. I genuinely do. Uh, it's a strange decision. I get it. People are going to look sideways at it. I, I think that it is an intriguing, creative uh, solution to a number of potential problems. Yeah, I, I think so too. And I, I want to run this idea past you, Sam, because I, I keep hearing this and, and uh, not to say I disagree, but there's this narrative that's already out there that the 2024 draft class is going to be weak. And uh, yeah. I, I think that it's certainly true right now in terms of the top tier talent hasn't identified itself, but yeah. per- perhaps the narrative that it's a weaker draft class has over influenced prospects to try to bet on themselves, improving their draft stock next year. And now what we're in for is a really bloated, like 18 to 38 range where there's a lot of really good players in there. We just don't have an idea of who's going to be one through 17 and how they kind of stack up. I get your point. I don't think it's, I don't think it's wrong necessarily. I think that draft has questions even up to like number five, to be honest, like let alone like from 18 on down. Like I think that draft has so many questions once you get past like Ron Holland and Modest and like even like honestly like I had some questions about Isaiah Collier to be completely real about it like I, I think Collier's good and like he'll be a one and done but like I, I just don't yeah I, I don't think that I don't think prospects over indexed on that this year is what I would say I, I think I, yeah. I I think that if you weren't a top 42 or so 45 prospect it was probably worth you going back and trying it again next year um in clinton's case i had him at 37 he was right on that edge right and frankly i think he would have gone in the top 40 like i feel pretty confident of that if he would have gone into this draft but yeah look i 
I liked Bobby. I thought that your statement on some of the contextual factors of his game was very apt. Uh, you know, just directly from the draft guide profile that I wrote on him that we'll have to wait until next year now. Uh, struggles separate from his man, has a real lack of explosiveness, uh, doesn't have a great first step, comfortable with the ball, but doesn't have a lot of shake to get away, um, more comfortable playing at pace and, and like trying to use his tempo to change speeds, very little pull-up game right now, has good touch, but just doesn't have any sort of game off the bounce. No you know, ball comes out relatively flat on those shots compared to the catch and shoot opportunities mm-hmm. only made 51% of his shots in the half court, uh, including only 38% of his layups actually, yep. which is a very concerning number for me. That's like Brandon Miller ish uh, in terms of finishing. And we talk about his being a question all the time. Um, footworking footwork sequences driving to the rim are not great. Uh, Potential on defense, but was hit or miss. Had some bad technique moments. Uh, stands up too high in his stance sometimes. Quick players had success uh, going at him in space. Could have been a magnet for switches early in his career. Th- these are all things that like really would have mattered for him playing in the NBA and even playing in the G League next year, I think. Yeah. Again, though, I think there are things that he can improve upon. He's still young in the game, despite the fact that he's 21. Like he got to the game a little bit later than what a lot of like very high level prospects do. So I'm really intrigued by Bobby Clintman. I think that I will have him as a projected first round pick next year, probably in like the 20 to 25 range, something along those lines has the upside to go in the lottery. Like if things really went right for him in Australia, that draft is so wide open. Anybody complaining about like, oh my God, how can you call this guy a lottery pick in 2024? Guys, there are, we aren't wide enough in terms of what we're considering a potential lottery pick in 2024. These guys have to get better. They have to improve. They have to do the work. But that draft is so wide open. Guys will improve. Guys will emerge into that space. But there's a lot of space. <laughs> a lot of space. A lot of space. So we need to understand that that's going to be complicated, let's say at the very least. Yep. And, and I think um, it's going to be a strong international draft class at, at most. There's a lot of opportunity for guys who aren't traditionally here to earn their way into some of those spots. That, that There could be a lot of movement from guys that aren't playing in college next year. It could be. Yeah. I mean, like Modis and uh, Ron Holland, I, I would have Ron Holland at number one in that class right now for what it's worth. Okay. Um, but like beyond them, I mean, like Izzy Almansa, Alex Saar, you know, Nikola Jurisic, Um, you know, I'm like trying to think off the top of my head now. Zachary, like, what? Rizach or Rizach? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Rizache. Um, my French is great. Yeah, I think he's a little bit less impressive than where some others have had him ranked, but uh, certainly a potential first-round pick and certainly a potential lottery pick uh, uh, later in that class. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I think we're going to see a lot of guys from that 2024 recruiting class or 2023 recruiting class that are ranked a little bit lower spike up. Like I will have like Garway Dwall. Yes. Like as a first, as like a um, projected first rounder next year, and he's like in the forties 
in recruiting rankings that I see. And I'm nah, he's like, good. man, that kid can play. He's got that it. Kid yep. can definitely play. Yep. Um, yeah. Interesting choice in Bobby Clinton. And, you know, I mentioned Nikola Jurisic as well. Nikola Jurisic is probably the other most high profile, maybe player to decide to withdraw from the 2023 draft and try his luck again next year. What was your take on Jurisic? Because we talked about him early in the year when he played against the Thompson twins and were impressed and thought he looked like a potential first rounder throughout the year. It was not that. (laughs) No, no, he's, he's a frustrating eval for me, Sam, in so many different ways. And I don't know how to properly contextualize it. Like he's just, he's one of those guys who would fall into the category of, I struggle to put all of the pieces of what I'm seeing together. So it's just not a bet I'm going to make. Like you talk about informed bets all the time and trying to decide what type of prospects you swing on. Like there's so many question marks that I have about Juricic that I'm not sure I could convince myself to take the swing on him anymore. I love the shooting form, but the shot doesn't fall. I see the playmaking stuff that he has with the ball in his hands but I don't believe he's athletically able to separate. I don't know who or what he guards position wise. Like I have so many questions that I don't have necessary answers to right now. I have no idea how to contextualize what I see from him. But it's so funny because like he can separate, like he has real athleticism and like has like shake and like creativity and all sorts of that stuff. Right. It's like, purely for me and like you mentioned like you don't know who he guards he actually like is active on defense like yeah. he wants to defend yeah like he, he plays hard it, it's it's the decision making tree is a nightmare right now in so many ways like when i watch him play basketball i just have like no idea what he's thinking like he's an over dribbler he throws like these crazy wild off target passes um uh, you know, like he'll throw the ball into traffic and it'll get tipped. And then like, he'll drive without a plan. And it's just like really bad. And like, that's why the shooting percentages are so bad. Like he shot 24% from three in the Adriatic league. Like a ton of those are pull-ups and like really, really fucking hard. Um, Yeah. Like even defensively, like the over aggression is there. Like he'll try and like go for steals that are bullshit and just do all sorts of silliness. Um, yeah. It, honestly, what I wrote in the summary of the draft guide thing that now will get scrapped until at least next season, he's honestly, I think I'd prefer it if Jurisic had not declared for this draft. So we could have seen a better pre-draft season from him. He's clearly gifted. He just doesn't know how to keep things in check in terms of dominating the ball and being overly aggressive. Yeah. yeah. That's it. Like that's the reality of the situation. Yeah. Anyone else catch your eye in terms of withdrawals? I don't think so. Um, you know, there, there are a bunch of guys, like for me, it, it wasn't necessarily any one name, but after watching the, early entrant withdrawal deadline from a couple weeks ago with all of the college players going back and taking up potential opportunities for more NIL or trying to play their way into the first round next year, whatever their rationale was. I thought that this could have turned into a real opportunity for a lot of potential draft and stashes in the later part of the second round. So I was surprised 
that there were a couple names that just withdrew, the Jurisic being one of them. I thought that we'd see more international guys stay in and use this as the opportunity to be that draft stash guy. Yes. Give me one name currently ranked outside of your top 70 that you think has a chance. Internationally? Anywhere. uh, Any player. Outside of my top 70, who I believe has a chance. I will go. I'll go with Trey Jamison at UAB. Love it. I have Trey Jamison ranked on my top 100. Uh, I don't have uh, a strong feel on that, but he's there. Um, my name would be, let's go with, let's go with Caleb McConnell. From I love Rutgers. that. Yeah, I love that. Very good defender that was one of the best defenders in college basketball the last few years. Six foot seven, so has real size. Um, has some ball handling ability as well, like not a zero with the ball in his hands yes. and not a zero in terms of decision making. Right. It's more just the shot and whether or not the shot ever gets fixed. But like, honestly, I think it gets pretty dire outside of 70 uh, in this class. It. It does very quickly, and, and I'll just share this with you and then with everybody out there, like how I'm viewing constructing my board this year. I'm probably only going to have a top 70 and then like a huge group of guys who I think are G League level talents and players who, who should be getting a shot there. And then yeah. kind of what type of system or what needs to break right for them to kind of increase that at the next level. Yeah, like – for the reference, for reference, like I have guys like Cam Shelton from Loyola Marymount, uh, Sule Boom from Xavier, Grant Sherfield from Oklahoma. Like I have these guys ranked in my top 100 right now, and I just, you know, all due respect to those players, they had great college careers. It's it's tricky uh, once you get past a certain point, is what I would say. It's very tricky. Yeah. Yes, it is. Okay. Anything else that you want to talk about? before we go anything else that i want to talk about that's a lot of responsibility to give a young man like me um i i don't think so i'm I'm gonna save this one for another day i love it okay uh real quick if you guys have any questions feel free to ask because otherwise we're gonna go um tito cruz uh in the youtube comments asks uh, were you happy proctor committed to another year with duke i felt like the second half of the year he showed some real promise um adam i'll let you take that first i thought it was a great decision on his part uh in large part because as a scout i was a little bit uncertain as to how real the flashes he showed in that late season were. I want to see them continue to develop, particularly in his ability to create his own shot. I thought he was much better at out of pick and rolls, getting to his spots, hitting mid range jumpers, feeling confident on how he was going to score with the ball in his hands. That was always the big question mark for me about Proctor, big point guard, super cerebral defends. Can he score and create his own shot to justify having the ball in his hands? We saw some flashes late season I want to see more. And if we can see it, I think that he's probably the returner. I'm most excited about becoming that lottery prospect next year. 
Yeah, I will have him in the lottery to start the year next year. It, it will likely be quite high uh, in, in the lottery. I, I would venture he is a top 10 guy for me in the lottery next year. Uh, I am a very, 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 very big fan. Um, this is a fun one from Jaron Abelson earlier. What's the value of five picks in the late teens, early 20s? Honestly, like you look back through draft history. I mean, I don't know if I don't think anybody's ever done five of them, but like two picks, like in the early 20s, you can jump like five or six spots typically in the draft. So you m- probably won't get a lottery pick. You might be able to get to 14. If you like, if Brooklyn moved 21 and 22, I don't think they would get to the lottery uh, in order yeah. to do that. So five of them uh, yeah i mean I, I don't think it'd be much to be completely honest what was the donovan mitchell trade returned wasn't he drafted 13 and it was trey lyles and the pick that ended up being tyler lyden so it was not a lot yeah yeah it's not too much okay uh from cosmo thoughts on tricks tristan vuksevitz uh i'm not really a fan for what it's worth. I I've seen some people like bring up first round for him. And I think that is like the most bonkers thing I have seen in a while uh, in the draft. Well, you talk about informed bets, Sam, like there's a point in the late thirties, early forties, like the middle part of that second round where I think that there's a good good case to make for an informed bet on just like a seven footer who can really shoot it. And the upside that that can bring to your offense in different regards. So like I, I get him in theory, uh, I'm going to do a, a deeper dive on, on his film this week and kind of report back more. Yeah. I, I just don't think he has the movement skills. Like even when you watch oh, Jokic, like awkward. Jokic is fluid movement he's skills. He's just slow. Yeah. Uh, Vuksevitz is like stiff and like kind of awkward. And yeah, exactly. Um, I, I have him like into the fifties and I don't really get it with him to okay. be completely honest. Um from Yanni thoughts on Leonard Miller's likely draft range. You're much more of the, the Intel and buzz guy or, or kind of getting a feel for, for that stuff than I am in, in a certain regard. Like I, I think, enough. I think 12 is probably the highest I could see him justifiably going with Oklahoma city, just because I know a lot of the boxes that they look for. He checks. I would still have him later in like the 17 to 27 range i guess yeah so i I do have him at number 12 on my board uh number 13 uh now looking at it and i would say that his range is somewhere 12 to i'm at the very high end uh for teams for what it's worth i would say somewhere 12 to 25 uh he'll go in the first round i feel pretty confident of that for what it's worth yeah um uh, from Dane Lofstad, haven't heard much on Jordan Hawkins lately. What's his range? Teams worried about age? Question mark. Definitely not age. It's more the frame. Uh, he has like had a few injuries in his past. Like I think he broke his arm when he was in high school, and then had a couple of concussions at Connecticut, if I remember correctly. I don't think this is like really necessarily impacting his draft stock in like a substantial way or anything, um, but. If there is a worry, it would be more that than the age, given how skinny he is and how slight his frame is. Uh, 
I would say his range is somewhere. Oh, like I'd be surprised if Orlando took him. Yeah, I'd be surprised if uh, maybe fourteen to fourteen to twenty-five, something like that. He'll go again. He'll go in the first round somewhere. Uh, the movement shooting's too valuable, but uh, it's a bit wide still. I would say. Uh, from Brian, best fit for the Kings. Don't say Chris Murray. Can I say Chris Murray? Like, I think Chris Murray just makes an immense <laughs> yeah. amount of sense for the Kings, to be honest. I know. I know. It really does. It really does. Uh, I'll actually throw a, a different player out there. Omax Prosper. Makes a ton of sense. Uh, if you really think Omax can shoot, that makes an awful lot of sense, I think. Uh, look, with how much they value shooting, I think Dariq Whitehead makes a lot of sense. Uh, if they really want to take a flyer on the injury risk there. Uh Noah Clowney, I think, makes yep. a bit of sense if they want like more of an athletic complement next to uh, Demonis Sabonis. I think there are a number of different ways uh, that you could go. Clowney's an interesting one because he could turn into that like Trey Lyles role that we saw where you play the small ball five with him against certain teams in the, the playoffs. Yep. Uh, from Gaelic Elander, is the lively in the lottery talk crazy? Uh, no. It nope. is not. Uh, I. It's close as to whether or not it will happen. But I think if you made me predict right now, I think he would go in the lottery. Uh, it, it's. If you made me pick one side or the other, I would say I think he will go in the lottery, but I am not. I have no certainty on that in any way, shape or form. Yeah, I mean, look, rimbound bigs who don't provide a ton, like offensively, are you can only have so many of them on your roster. So it essentially turns into like there are going to be gaps in when or where he can be picked just because certain teams won't need him. But man, like he is so damn good defensively. If you're questioning Derek Lively, just go back and watch the first half of their game against Oral Roberts. Just just go watch that. Just go watch that. Unbelievable. Uh, latest on Gigi Jackson, first round. Uh, total question mark at this point. Uh, teams are so all over the map w- with him. Again, if you made me pick a side, I would say I think he goes in the second, but I think there's a pretty, there's a good chance he goes in the first. I, I would say, like, I don't have, I don't have him nailed down in terms of range yet, but I think his range is quite wide uh, from. I don't know, 15 down to like 40, probably, to be honest. It's there are just teams that like aren't going to be real interested in him. So, again, there are going to be gaps in where he is available to be picked. Yep. Oh, let's see here. Um, from Nabil Mukhtar, uh, what do you think of Marcus Sasser? I think he can be a solid contributor on both ends as a perimeter defender and three point shooter for a contender. Agree. Strong agree. I have him at 31, I think. Something along those lines. Uh, I really like Marcus Sasser and think he's a uh, longtime NBA player. I really like Marcus Sasser, too. I love his defense and tenacity. Love his the ability to crowd the ball and really get into guys and frustrate them. I'm just struggling to, to really know at what point do you value those drastically undersized players. Yeah. Uh, from Dirty Dancer, why is Nick Smith rising? I think it's, I have not really, 
uh, how do I want to phrase this? I think Nick Smith is working out for a lot of lottery teams right now. And that is the perception based on that fact. I'm not saying he's not rising. I'm just saying that I wouldn't necessarily like take that as gospel uh, that, you know, he goes in the top 15 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think the, the only other thing that I would throw into the equation here is to say, remember what happened a couple of years ago with Zaire Williams when he was coming out of Stanford, highly touted out of high school, strange freshman season for a lot of different reasons. And some NBA team was willing to just bet on the upside and the tape that they saw pre-college. I think that's continues to be what Nick Smith is in a lot of evaluators eyes. Like he is a bet on him turning into what he looked like he could have been a year or so ago playing in high school. I still have questions about that film. I'm not saying that that's a top 10 guy, but that might be why he's mentioned more in that lottery range. Yeah. Like, I mean, Keon Johnson, this happened with Nasir little, this happened with like, you can honestly, I think find more examples of guys dropping uh, when that's the case, as opposed to rising. Uh, at the end of the day, it's just a team that's going to have to be willing to ignore the Arkansas tape and believe in the human being that is Nick Smith. And from what I've been told, like really good kid, um, worth, you know, not, not a bad kid at all and willing to really buy into the hype on him and buy into what he showed in high school and on the AAU circuit. And Again, this is not my favorite player type. I have him into the twenties personally, but I, I get it. I guess I would say uh, for you, Adam, because this is one of your favorites. Thoughts on Kobe Brown from Baba Fall? Oh, I love Kobe Brown so much. Just such a winning player, smart decision maker, strong, physical, rugged defender. I think he's mechanically fixed the shot in a way that's sustainable, or at least enough for me to buy into this one season spike being yep. not a panic button type of thing to, to kind of write off uh, great elite human being defends across the lineup and every decision he makes versatile on the basketball court is important. You can play him spot up handling, pick and roll short rolling mismatch, posting handling in transition. He's a smart decision maker in all of those. That's winning basketball, baby. Give me Kobe Brown. Agree. Uh, I have Kobe Brown as a first round grade. Uh, from Scow's Roar, uh, OKC at 12 makes a ton of sense for Lively. I kind of agree. I, I think that it does. I will say that like, it would, in some respects, go against a lot of what Oklahoma City has valued recently uh, from the center position. Uh, they tend to like guys who can like dribble past shoot at the center position. You know, think Jalen Williams. They played Isaiah Roby at the center spot. You draft Chet Holmgren, you know, I think a number of different things there line up in terms of every reason why they wouldn't take him, but it's possible that they just want a center next to Chet Holmgren and think that Lively could make a lot of sense there. I I, I personally wouldn't mind it. I, I'm just not totally sure that like he ticks Oklahoma City, I guess is what I would say. See, I like Lively there a lot. I think he's an underrated short roll passer, which is something the Thunder need to be cognizant of in you know, having somebody next to Shea Gilgis-Alexander in the pick and roll. 
And if you believe that you have the greatest shooting coach on the face of the planet and can get Derek Lively into becoming a consistent three-point shooter, and maybe Oklahoma City has that, uh, then I certainly get the upside gamble on, on kind of what he would bring on both ends of the floor. All right. I'll close with this uh, from Tito Cruz. Uh, we started with one from Tito. We'll end with one from Tito. Are there any players we aren't talking about that can go in the first round? I- I'm like really trying to like dig a little bit on this one. Cause I don't want to give just like, Oh yeah. Like maybe, maybe some team buys in and takes Jalen Wilson in the first round. Like, I feel like that's like, plausible i'm looking for like a david roddy like stunner basically okay let me dig through my the depths of my board here as well um hmm. i've got a name okay do you want to go first or me i want you to go first because i I wonder if it's the same name how about seth lundy if a team really truly valued just like three and D uh, maybe a team is out there. That's just like, fuck, like we really want somebody who can come in and knock down shots off of movement and can be like a physical defender. I look I, again, like I, I'm, I would be stunned if this happens. I, I would be like genuinely surprised if he went in the first round. But if you were trying to come up with said stunner, maybe like maybe that's a name that here's here's the problem with trying to come up with names for the end of the first round right now. I don't know if any of those teams are going to have those picks. Yeah, because if you look at who has them currently, Indiana has 26, 29 and 32. There is no way Rick Carlisle is bringing four rookies to camp. (laughs) That's just not happening. Charlotte has 27, 34, 39, and 41 on top of number two. There's no way. Utah has three first-round picks and maybe a second? No, they Mm -hmm. don't have a second. They have three first-round picks. Like I would imagine they're a real candidate to move that pick. The Clippers are looking for like potentially win-now players. Uh, Maybe they could move that pick. Uh, 30. Uh, like there are just so many real potential avenues there where it's just like, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to be tough to to predict that range. And I think another part of that is there are so many guys that are in that like 20 to 40 range that you could justify with giving a first round pick that like, we're really grasping at straws trying to find another name here. Um, I'll just throw one out there because why the hell not? Um, Mo Jai from Washington State. Just give me the case. I'm not that high on him, but like shows a lot of intriguing tools for movement. I believe I believe it's Mo Gay as well. Mo Gay, for what it's worth. Yeah, Mo Gay, big, long, athletic, and somewhat fluid. Has shown some touch in the past as a shooter. Had a couple really good games as a playmaker this year at Washington State, part of a huge upset over Arizona where he looked really dialed in and was super, super strong through that one. Like there's just some upside to him and a lot of ways that NBA teams have been interested in in big men before. 
not saying I would have him anywhere near that range, but if there's one kind of shocking guy who fits the, well, let's just pluck him out of thin air kind of archetype. Like he's one of the few big men that has some shooting touch that would be available. Yeah. I think that's the big question with Mo is like, what is the actual shooting touch, yes. but like the mo- the fluid movement, you can make a case for it for sure. I think I, I have, I have him at like 63. I'm not like wildly high on him, but again, if we're trying to find like stunners in the first round, right. I think that's a fun name to bring up at the very least. Okay. Adam, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on. Uh, tell the people everything they need to know. Yeah. Uh, shout out Sam for having me on again. This was really, really fun to be here. Shout out Denver Nuggets, 2023 NBA champions. Uh, anybody can find my work. Just go on my Twitter page at the box and one underscore links to everything on there. My YouTube channel, my Substack. trying to throw out a bunch of team previews, uh, a lot of last minute, like under the radar draft videos and scouting reports out there. Busy time for me on the high school basketball scene, uh, playing a lot of team camps and tournaments, heading down to DeMatha for DMV Live on Thursday this week. So uh, juggling a lot of things right now with high school and scouting, and it's it's crunch time here in June, but uh, wouldn't have it any other way. Basketball is the greatest thing on the planet. Well, and speaking of which, I'm probably going to make you do a mock draft at some point this week, so you okay. will probably be back, I would guess, later this week. We will Love see. It. Um, I told Schindler I would have him on to do something as well. We'll be back probably tomorrow, maybe the next day. We will see. I don't know. Um, but I, I'm gonna try and like really do quite a bit of draft stuff here leading up over the next 10 days just because that's what we have to look forward to. And unfortunately, my brain is filled with random shit when it comes to the draft, so it's good to share with people. Uh, that's about all I've got. The draft guide is coming Wednesday or Thursday. Uh, something in that range could be Wednesday, could be Thursday. Depends on how many edits uh, need to be made to these last few profiles that I write, to be honest. The good news is that those last couple of profiles are just popping in at the end. They are for uh, Tosan Abunum. And uh, who is 75 now for me? It is Caleb McConnell, who we spoke about a minute ago. Nice. So that's what I've got. Keep it locked here. We will be back later this week. Until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye. (laughs) 